What's up, everybody? This is Rocket to the Cloud. Welcome to another episode of Rocket to the Cloud, the interview series where we chat with leaders and decision makers in software development. Before going any further, let me tell you that Rocket to the Cloud is presented by Booster. Booster Framework is part of the Booster Cloud ecosystem and is the most complete solution to build event-driven applications. It's an open source framework that makes use of high-level abstractions and conventions to help you develop advanced event-driven applications focusing on business logic exclusively. Write your application in terms of commands, events, and entities, and let Booster figure everything else out for you, from the boilerplate code or the API design to the optimal cloud architecture. It even knows how to deploy your code in a true serverless experience. Learn more by visiting booster.cloud. We've got a very special guest for this episode. If you've been a part of the cloud native computing or DevOps space, then he probably needs no introduction. I'm talking about Kelsey Hightower. He is a principal developer advocate at Google Cloud and a leading figure in the Kubernetes and containers open source communities. As a matter of fact, he co-authored the Kubernetes up and running book along with Joe Bate and Brendan Burns. And he has a very popular tutorial called Kubernetes the hard way. But to say that he's just a Kubernetes expert would be an understatement. If you've seen any of his many keynotes, you would probably notice that he is also a great storyteller and a very inspirational speaker. Well, enough of my yakking. Let's go to the interview. Hey, hi, Kelsey. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for accepting to be part of this episode of Rocket to the Cloud. Um, I'm looking forward to having an awesome conversation. We're going to touch on a lot of topics from Kubernetes to open source to serverless, a lot of stuff. So I want to start out with um, what you're probably most well known for, which is, of course, Kubernetes. I can see that you have uh, your book over there in the background. Do you feel like Kubernetes, like nowadays, is sort of overhyped and at the same time misunderstood piece of technology? I'm not saying it's bad, though. I'm saying uh, Kubernetes is awesome for what it is, but... It seems that there's like a, a lot of hype and a lot of misunderstanding. You know, people don't really seem to get Kubernetes. So if you can, you know, elaborate on that. Yeah, I think like when any new tool shows up that has a lot of promise, right? Like, you know, most tools build on the learnings from their previous tools. So if you think about mainframes and everyone using mainframes at the time, those came out to, you know, going to those pizza box type servers and, People probably got really excited that those would then make mainframes obsolete. But here we are in 2021, there's plenty of mainframes. And the same was true of virtualization and then the cloud and then Docker and then Kubernetes. So I think when people, if you look back over the last 30, 40 years, you'll understand that none of these things really deprecate or make something else obsolete. New people starting today may say, well, if I have no existing infrastructure, maybe Kubernetes is the absolute best place to start, right? There's no need to necessarily go through, you know, VMs and learn how to do config management when a lot of those concepts and fundamentals are baked into Kubernetes. So that's probably the best place to start. Even inside of an existing company, they have a new idea and they say, well, maybe we'll just do the new idea on Kubernetes. And this is how you end up with five or six different platforms is because 
people are constantly building. And every time you build something new, it gives you another chance to say, well, how would I build it now, given the state of the world? So I think where Kubernetes is, it's matured quite a bit. I would say the base platform, this container orchestration tool, can definitely run applications across multiple servers. It gives you a very declarative way of doing that. And where we are right now, though, is most people don't really have a great workflow nailed down, right? Most people are at the equivalent of running bash scripts against their API server. Hey, run this app for me. And then it all gets a little fuzzy when you start to think about change management. You know, how do you change different apps over time and keep dependencies in check? Now we're kind of back to where we fundamentally started. You know, this was the problem that has always been there. So is it hyped up still? Um, I think hype is that combination of a successful tool that has valid use cases and a lack of understanding. So people just kind of repeat the things that they read or hear. And so that's where a lot of the hype comes from. But I'm seeing a lot more people understand what it is because we're finally seeing those blog posts that we tried Kubernetes and it wasn't the right tool for us. We went to something like Cloud Run, which is the other book behind me, or we're going to go serverless now. We like those principles, so we're going to keep those. We're going to keep that container image. We're going to keep the declarative interface, but we're just going to go move to a platform that has exactly what we need, not what we might need. So you shouldn't look at these technologies as sort of like competing against each other. You just need to find the right use case, the one that adapts to you know where your company is currently at, right? Or learn from them too. I think another thing as like an as an engineer, what you can do is you can look at Kubernetes and see how it does things. And you may borrow some concepts into your own environment. For example, you know, this idea of having uh, secrets and configs be separate from the deploy, that might help you understand how to use configuration management better. Like, hey, why do we have all this stuff baked in? Maybe we should separate these two concepts and then bring them back together. Or the way Kubernetes thinks about service discovery. You may look at your environment and say, hey, we've been kind of doing this in a weird way. Let's bring in console and add service discovery to our architecture. So you can learn a lot. And then sometimes it may make sense to say, well, maybe we don't want to glue this together ourselves. Maybe we do bring in Kubernetes, but we're going to be very pragmatic about it. We're going to figure out how to have them sit side by side. So we have 99% VMs, new apps will go to Kube, and we're going to make sure we do all the horizontal integration work, firewall rules, networking, to make sure that now we have the opportunity to decide and prioritize what things need to move over that can benefit. And then you might have a five-year plan to take everything from the VM world and move it to the Kubernetes world. And look, and it's just the right pacing because what actually happens, the things you need to do really well for Kubernetes, you typically really need to do for your VMs as well, loggings, metrics, monitoring. So you can make those tools kind of common between the stacks. You really want to pick Kubernetes when you think about having an opinionated way to describe an app deployment and have some built-in facilities for HA, collecting logs, performing health checks. So I think that's what I would do as a pragmatist looking at this particular tool. Um, but I think you touched on something important, which is uh, being a pragmatic experimenter and try out new stuff. Most of this stuff, it's you know, it's open source, so it's free to use. When, when, I guess when you're a startup and you're short on cash and you want to have to deal with you know, cloud providers and then you see that then your number of machines start to grow and then you get a huge AWS or GCP or Azure bill. So how, how could you handle dealing with, you know, with the cloud providers uh, when you're like a, like a, a limited budget, you're not some 
huge corporation that lots of with lots of cash to burn. Yeah. So one thing on the hype piece, um, there's nothing wrong with being motivated or inspired. And sometimes hype can do that, right? You see the trailer for the movie, you get hyped up and then comes the part where you got to buy the movie ticket, drive there, buy the popcorn, stand in line, do all the things. So I think we got to make sure we understand like the, the series of emotions you're going to go through. <laughs> that <laughs> hype part ain't going to be how it's going to be every day. So you got to make sure you understand that's just to get you into the door and then you can, reality will set in, but give yourself room to do that. Now, let's say you're a startup and you're starting from scratch. And a lot of times startups are going to be composed of people who have experience, right? So they've used the cloud, they've tried other tools, and, and, and in their mind, they're going to say, you know what? We're going to get it right this time. I'm not making the same mistakes again. So you're going to get lucky if you can find talented people who do have experience. So when they look at Kubernetes, they say, you know what? This has 90% of the things we're going to have to build anyway. So let's not try to go and cook it up from scratch. We're here where we are. And what you might do then, if you're, you mentioned cloud provider specifically, what you want to do then is probably say, is there a managed Kubernetes offering, right? Because if you think about like a virtual machine in the cloud, it's really a managed hypervisor. You don't really think about installing a hypervisor like VMware or OpenStack before you start getting some compute. You can think about Kubernetes the same way. The other thing I would probably throw in that discussion would be, I think it is smart for a startup to bet on containerization, like a universal packaging format for my app. And that doesn't mean that you're betting on Kubernetes or even Docker for that matter. You're just betting that this is going to be the universal way of distributing and running an application. It's my ultimate contract with a service provider. And if I'm a real startup and I don't have customers yet and we're still kind of prototyping, kind of finding our way, then serverless really looks very interesting, right? Something like Cloud Run, something that just says, you know what, deploy the app, we're going to be able to scale automatically horizontally and you pay for use. And that's going to probably be really great when you're just doing integration testing, you know, maybe you're showing it to maybe a customer or two and it's a tight dev loop that you're in. Because if you invest in the container format and maybe you start to say, oh, this workload's at a point where the serverless platform is no longer meeting my needs, then all I have to do really is start to write a little bit of a Kubernetes manifest and I can reuse that container and most of the things that I've kind of ramped up on the serverless side. So then I'm moving to a managed Kubernetes offering. And the last thing I'll say here is the last thing I'm going to do is have this team become really good at installing Kubernetes and upgrading Kubernetes. That's where I would probably say, let's slow down here because right now we're not building an infrastructure startup. We're building a startup right. that builds products. So let's go buy infrastructure where it makes sense. If we can summarize, what would be, you know, like a useful, uh, you could say you know, like heuristic or method that companies of all different sizes should follow when deciding to go with or adopt a specific technology, whether it's either Kubernetes or any other tool, programming language, et cetera, because you work at Google. So you probably need to you probably got a lot of customers that you need to um, advise in these matters. I would say if you just get the fundamentals right, I see a lot of people skip the fundamentals and they believe that they can buy their way out of understanding. For example, most compute platforms, the thing that executes your process are easier to manage when you're intentional about where your data lives, right? If you're using SQLite and it's writing to this slash random place, maybe no one knows why it's writing there, it's going to be hard to adopt any other compute platform because you don't know where the data lives. You don't know what your IO requirements, you know that it just works in its current setting. So you don't have enough information to evaluate the trade-offs of other platforms. 
So fundamentally, if you have a good handle on where your data lives, this is why we use things like external databases and object stores. Once you do that fundamental thing in your current situation, then the evaluation of the newest technology, so when containers come around, you already understand the fundamentals of your situation. So then what you're going to ask is, how does Kubernetes allow me to leverage object stores and databases? It turns out it's exactly the same way you do now. There's networking and there's a config file. But what people do, since they don't understand the fundamentals, they say stuff like, we want a cloud-native MySQL. What, what are you talking? What does that even mean? Like, there's no, there is no cloud-native MySQL. We want a cloud-native storage driver. There's only storage. Kubernetes can only automate the mounting and unmounting of the storage. What you want actually is understanding. We want to understand what our app needs. Today, we mount a SSD in this path. We want to know, does Kubernetes support mounting SSDs in a path? And it turns out it does. And you don't have to buy a cloud-native storage mounting tool. Just tell Kubernetes to mount some storage. <laughs> Kubernetes is one of the most well-known and successful open source projects that are out there. But, you know, it's backed by the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. And before that, it was developed by guys over at Google and had the backing of Google. So what do you think are the best ways for open source projects that don't have the backing of large organizations like Google or Cloud Native Computing Foundation to um, get themselves, you know, uh, known and uh, increase their adoption and ultimately become successful and in Kubernetes case almost become like the de facto standard for in this case container orchestration but whatever this specialty of the project is you got to ask yourself a very serious question do you want that you know i i have several libraries and tools that i've open sourced and i was a core maintainer and you know comfd was a configuration tool that really was like a idea that in the cloud native world, we don't necessarily need a full configuration management tool. And it was the tool that kind of launched console template from the HashiCorp folks. And the nice thing about it, I'm trying to scratch my own itch, right? So I built it for an organization we were at. It freed us from like a big configuration management dependency. And we had just enough config management to go along with some of the Docker innovative things we were doing on the compute side. But then like a Saturday, you would get emails like, hey, love the project. I love the price, absolutely zero. But I really need you to fix some bugs that my big corporation has, and we like you to do it free, and we will like you to do it as fast as possible. If you multiply that by 10,000 people opening GitHub issues because they're all using your product, they want to see it evolve, can you, do you really want to dedicate your life to fixing GitHub issues for free? That's a question you really got to ask. So if you don't have the backing, so the reason why you know a lot of these things that we see have backing is because it takes money and dollars to market yeah. and create logos and put on conferences and assign full-time employees that are making you know Bay Area salaries to really curate and be stewards of these projects. And then there's a commercial incentive that if they all work on this thing, that they can then go build products that do generate real revenue to keep the whole thing going. When you don't have that kind of ecosystem, you got to ask yourself, do you really want to get that big? And that's a question I've been asked numerous of times. And I've just recommended people just fork my project. Just, just fork it, take all the code. You can even name it similar. Like I, I am, I'm not holding on to this because I can't sign up for that whole thing. So I think what we got to do is make sure we understand 
all of these projects are a responsibility. They're a liability as well, because if there's a security issue and you're the maintainer and it came from your project, the liability is that people will go on Twitter and talk about you. Oh, this Kelsey guy didn't patch this thing. And now we have a security hack and he's the reason why I'm hacked. And you got to understand that kind of responsibility. So ask your question, is that really what you want? Yeah, because I noticed that a lot of uh, projects, you know, seems like their end game is to be supported by larger, by larger organizations. You know, otherwise, it's, I guess it's what differentiates a pet project that was useful to, you know, a large group of people, but instead becoming, you know, like an industry standard, like, I don't know, like Kubernetes or like all of the Apache family of stuff. So yeah, let's talk to that. that. So when you create that readme, put your intentions like, hey, this is a personal project. Uh, I'm not interested in fixing random issues. Here's the visions. We're not going to add a bunch of features. You can use it because I use it. And then when you stop using it, you can put it at the top. I don't use this anymore. Um, I'm probably not going to look at every issue. But if you do want it to get big, then there's a strategy. Now you got to kind of put your business hat on and say, look, I yeah. do want to get this thing to be big. And I think some good products early on, like the Reddish project, you know, I remember they used to partner with companies like VMware. You would see, hey, this project is sponsored by VMware. So now you have some guaranteed salaries. You have people helping you out with the marketing. So there is a strategy for going about getting a product to be big, but understand it's going to bring in a lot of those business elements that you may yep. or may not be interested in. And also, um, what about communities? Because I personally think that, you know, open source projects are nothing without an engaged community. So um, what do you think are the best ways to grow the community around a project? I think that, you know, in-person events like conferences, meetups and all that kind of stuff, they make a difference. Do you agree with that? The reason why I'm also asking is because during the past year or so, we're living in these remote uh, Zoom conference call uh, times in which we can't get together with people in the same room and talk about, you know, uh, these kinds of things. Your thoughts on everything I just rambled on about. So this is a very interesting thing, too, because... Um... I have this complex analogy, but I don't know if it's going to work. Like when a company goes public and they become a publicly traded company, they raise an initial set of funds when they go public, right? And that's their initial offering. And they take that money and they invest in the business and it grows. And then there's the secondary market where people buy and trade that stock, believing that the value of that company will go up from time. And they have people that commentate on the stock. There's rumors and leaks. That community is humongous, and those people will never probably ever contribute to any actual business impact other than buying and trading that stock. So when you say, is it necessary to have a large community to these, you can think about a private company. Sometimes, like your power company, right? Most of them aren't publicly traded. They're just like, your, you know, linear neighborhood. They do a very good job. It's boring. Everyone relies on it. Grep, LS. Have you ever gone to GrepCon? Everyone uses Grep, <laughs> but there's no GrepCon. You know what I mean? And I think OpenSSL, which some, what most people use, I think there was a time where there were only like two people working on it. So you got situations where when things get super stable and boring, they tend to fade to the background, disappear. And the only thing you really need there is to keep it stable, hold its promises. And it's kind of unfortunate that we put all the weight on the people who do step up. So shout out to all the maintainers yeah. that are you know, maintaining these stable but highly important projects. And then you have things that 
have like gaps to fill. Like to me, the the projects that have the biggest communities, it's almost like group therapy sometimes too, right? It's like, <laughs> man, this thing is so complicated. I need someone to talk to, right? This thing is going down. I don't understand it. So then you go and seek out help from other humans to help fill those gaps. And though it's necessary for them to have this kind of community outlet, you know, hey, how are you doing this? How should I think about it? I still don't understand. It's going to take two or three of these visits and a couple of meetups. So, so sometimes these projects like Kubernetes, they cover so many things, distributed systems, storage, security. There's so many fundamental things around it that just looking at the source code alone probably won't be enough for you to really understand what you're getting yourself into. Therefore, we need people to talk about how they practice those various disciplines, how do the fundamentals kick in. So I think that's where that sense of community comes from. It starts to grow. Um, things like programming languages as well. So many people use them, but you can use them in any way you want. So then you really need to kind of get some curated input, right? So it's like music. We rely on the DJ to help us understand what good music is. It helps us discover things. So programming language also benefit from discovery. Like, hey, here are some design patterns or here's what's coming next because it's hard to keep up with something I depend on. And then the simpler tools tend to see less of a community because they're so straightforward. They're so easy to use. There's not a lot to necessarily ask questions about. So that's the way I look at these communities. I don't think it's a requirement. You know, last thing I'll say here is if you're a maintainer, you may be looking like, man, I, gotta, I don't have enough. I don't have a conference. <laughs> I don't have enough contributors. I don't have enough people. I don't have enough posts on Hacker News. That's not a requirement, to be honest. Sometimes the best thing you can do for the community is publish your idea, show people how it works, and then that may spark someone else to go do more with it. And that's a valid contribution as well. What do you look for in an open source project or uh, or product, you know, especially those that are related to cloud native technologies? What are the things that did you expect to see to to, you know, to, to get your attention and to say, oh, this looks interesting, you know, I, I want to try this out? So my approach is like the approach when I'm going to like a hardware store, like the Home Depot or Lowe's, right? There are so many aisles. There's like 40 aisles, right? I don't need a toilet right now, so I'm not going to go to the toilet aisle. That's just not a problem I have. But I might be trying to patch up a piece of drywall, so I'm going to head to the aisle where the tools are for dealing with drywall. I might do a little bit of research. Um, Home Depot has videos about, hey, here's how you fix a thing. So all right, I might do business with them because they've given me some education. So now I'm drawn in, so I'm going to go take a deeper look. So I tend to go and say, look, what things do I actually use? Right? I'm using open policy agent for a specific need. And I may decide that, oh, I really want to run this thing on GCP. They don't have support for GCP's metadata service, but they do have support for Amazon's metadata service. I'll hop into the, you know, the Slack channel and say, hey, love the project. I'm using it for this situation. Is anyone working on GCP metadata service integration? Nope. Hey, can I take that one? I got it. So at that point, I'm kind of scratching my own need. I, I write all the unit tests, I file an issue, I submit the code, take feedback, fix things, and then it gets merged in. So typically, a lot of my contribution these days are, what am I using? And if it's a problem that I personally run into, I'm going to spend my time there, get it done, and then try to move on to the next thing. So I've contributed to the Go standard library. I write most of my things in Golang. There are a few things that I wanted to see in the project. So that's where I spent my time. The thing I don't do anymore, and I used to do more of, I don't quite go hunting for just things to work on, right? Like, hey, let me go figure out 
you know, I want to join this community. I don't even use the tool. And let me just find a few open issues so I can start doing things. I don't do those things now because I just have so many other things on my plate. But earlier in my career, that's how I used to approach open source projects. Like, hey, I want to learn Python. So let me go start contributing to disutils and pip the, you know, the package manager in the Python space. And then I'm just like, let me figure out other issues. I want to do my part. I've received a lot from that community. How can I give back? I can do it through documentation, fixing bugs, asking, answering questions on IRC. That's the way I used to think about it as well. It's just like, I want to return the favor uh, that has been given to me. So the same question, but applied to commercial products. What do you look for in, in, in like a, a commercially available tool or product that would say, oh, I would actually spend, I would spend money on this? Um, yeah, I really got to need it. Whew. <laughs> I mean, I, it, it, there has to almost be no other choice for me to pay, right? So um, things that offer me ton of convenience is like an email service, right? I'm willing to pay for that. So there's Gmail, but I have a G Suite thing. Um, mm -hmm. Domain name registers, right? Like I pay for those because there's not, I don't want to set up my own top level domains, probably incredibly hard anyway. So I pay for that convenience to have a registrar take care of that for me. So I think there's a lot of things in our life that we don't mind paying for, you know, whether it's our streaming media that we consume or it's these various compute platforms that are fairly priced that we can then leverage. And then when things get a little bit more expensive, we start to ask ourselves, you know, that buy versus build. Is it cheaper for me just to take Prometheus and just run it over here because I'm only using it in a light way? It doesn't really justify the cost of a fully managed service. So I kind of put on that buy versus build hat, my ability to do it, my desire to do it, and then what's the cost of me making that trade-off? I want to go back a little bit in time. So you have a background in systems administration, right? One of your first jobs was doing sysadmin for over a company over in, in Atlanta? Yeah, so, I mean, a little bit of my experience kind of predates that. You know, I got out of high school. I got A-plus certified, you know, Linux-plus certified. I did contract work for what is, you know, AT&T back in the day doing DSL. This is when high-speed internet started to roll out. And then I started a small business where I had a computer store and I had people going out and doing, you know, service calls. And we were like the mini IT department for local businesses, right? So I did that for a number of years. But then when I stopped doing that kind of stuff, I got into the, the job market. And when I went into the job market, one of my first jobs was at a Google data center in Atlanta. And, you know, you think about all of these servers, I mean, lots of servers and <laughs> okay, a, a lot of automation tools that were home built, but there was still some need for system administration. You know, you had to troubleshoot single bit memory errors. Um, and we would build tools that would troubleshoot machines by the thousands, right? Because you're not dealing with one or two machines at a time. So we built a lot of automation tools, but that was my first kind of entry point into Linux system administration, working inside of a Google data center where the admin had to work at scale. But I've also worked at various companies of various sizes where, you know, a lot of times you're kind of doing break fix, make sure the application is running, make sure that it's healthy. And then I transitioned to the other side of the equation, which is building the applications that actually um, power the business, starting to write some of that business logic. So coming from a sysadmin, a lot of the background stuff that I used to do was, you know, like converting the batch jobs from COBOL mainframe to Python and rewriting them because it felt scripty, right? Take this mm -hmm. file, you know, it's EBSIDIC file, pack decimal, process the fields, translate them and put them in some database or a message queue. 
it was a very natural progression and transition until I started writing APIs and so forth. And then the other part of my career was taking a lot of that knowledge. And when I started working at Puppet Labs, it was like this perfect combination of a software developer with a system administrator's background building tools for platform teams. So uh, that's where a lot of my experience came from. And uh, you started at Puppet, but as a user before you got the job at Puppet, right? Yeah, so, I used to work in f financial services for about three years, and Puppet was at version 023 or something. And I remember bringing that in as the automation tool for this. You know, this is a large financial institution, so all the reservations of adopting new technology. But I was patient. You know, it took me about a year and a half, really, to go from QA level experience to something that's in production. So that meant building out my own Puppet modules, integration points to automate things that Puppet didn't quite do. But yeah, I started out as a user of Puppet in production in a financial services company with a lot of legacy. So all the things that people say are impossible, I lived through all of those. And where you were at the time that, you know, all the systems automation that you talked about over at that Google data center, all the kind of stuff that you were doing would end up becoming, you know, what we call DevOps nowadays, which is like a, like a different path that, just, that like a software engineer could take. You know, you could do like front end, back end, and then like DevOps is this whole new thing that's going on. 10 years ago, there wasn't even, I don't think the, the, the term was even coined. So were you aware at the time that you were doing something that would end up becoming this whole new discipline? Yeah, I remember when I had a, uh, our engineering director went to a conference and came back and he was like, I know what you all are doing now. You're doing DevOps. And I looked at him and was like, look, if you need a word to describe this, then cool. But what, luckily for me, I learned that the, the word doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. What I learned is that the more skills you have, the more places you can contribute. So if all you want to do is Linux system administration and you wear that title, I'm a Linux system administration level two, right? That's all you want to do. That's all you think about. Then that's all you can do. And that's all you can think about, right? But if you learn how to write Java, which I did at that particular company, then I can actually start contributing to the application stack. So then my skill set expanded. And I think whenever you expand your skill set, then you can actually start to enter in different domains. And this is something that should be encouraged in all walks of life. Lots of us have different skills. So the more skills you acquire, the more you can do. I think what happened in the enterprise where people started to say, I am my job title, right? Yeah. You told me I'm a Oracle DBA, then I shall be the Oracle DBA. I don't look at Postgres. And some people tuck on that philosophy and it created... It's not just silos. Everyone keeps saying silos are bad. So not really. When I go and get my internet access, that's a silo. And I go to Best Buy and I buy a modem and I screw it in the wall. It just works. It's a silo with a great interface. And I think a lot of teams can actually you know, benefit from that, but they have to have the skills to provide the interfaces so that teams can work independently without necessarily sitting by each other to do every single task, even the ones you've done a thousand times. What do you think of the current day situation of Puppet and the entire DevOps ecosystem? You know, the Ansibles, the Chefs, everything by HashiCorp. Has it reached its, you know, its peak maturity or is there still room for improvement? Yeah, all those configuration management tools, Terraform to Puppet and everything in between, they always have room to go up, right? They can, they can be faster. They can improve their DSLs, their languages for describing automation. Um, the philosophy there is, you know, think about why those tools are invented in the first place. 
a lot of times those tools were dealing with unstructured interfaces, right? Command prompts, raw APIs from a cloud providers that didn't really think about horizontal integration. So a lot of these tools appear to fill in the gaps where there was no clean API. So then we, we, we basically took the concepts from like bash basically, and we put a more of a structured language on top to kind of give us this ability to define a resource, right? This whole promise theory declarative approach. And so, yeah, will that work? Of course. Right. But to me, it's kind of like a bash script on steroids. We just got to be intellectually honest with it. Right. You are basically creating these things that say, do this, do this, do this, do this. And if there's an error, we can try again in a moment. And then we can put a interface on top, whether it's like a Ruby DSL in the case of Chef, or you have HCL in the case of Terraform. Either way, though, you're giving people a higher level way of doing just that. But what happens in the world where there's typed infrastructure? In the world of Kubernetes, there are actual types to the infrastructure. This is a config map. This is a secret. This is how they relate to each other. In those worlds, number one, you don't necessarily need a Puppet or Terraform to start an application, place it on the server, make sure the config map's in the right place because you tell Kubernetes all of those things and the actuation happens in a well-defined structured way. Config files are always mounted first because that's because Kubernetes is in control and that's the rules of the platform. In the Puppet world, in the config management world, there are no rules. So Puppet has to do things to say like, oh, this is a file and that file is dependent on by this service and this service is dependent on by this package. So you're sitting there trying to create a rule set to be enforced by this new thing. Whereas Kubernetes comes out of the box with a very clear set of rules. So this is why you see a lot of people may not use Puppet or Ceph with those particular tools because it just doesn't make sense. Now, maybe you can orchestrate the thing above it, right? So now instead of calling random commands on a CLI prompt, you're now interacting with an API. There's going to be room to evolve that as well. And I think tools like Pulumi are coming into the space trying to do that. And then we have the extreme end, which is like the serverless world where there is nowhere to run those tools and all you expose it is an API and you're now exposing not just raw one-to-one -one resources. Like in the Kubernetes world, you have raw resources like a volume, a database object or whatever. But in serverless, we have room now for workflows. I want you to deploy this app with 50% of the traffic. And that's something where the orchestration is now built in at the very high level. So do those tools have a place in the future? Uh, maybe. And if they do go away, then we should celebrate because that represents progress. We don't necessarily have to glue together our infrastructure anymore. What do you think of the, the serverless ideal of not having to ever think about, you know, infrastructure and configuration, that kind of stuff? You know, instead, like you just said, think of workflows and not have to worry about this. Is that where we should be headed, you know, in, in cloud software development? Yeah, every part of our life, we're okay with that. Well, your electricity, you're okay with that. You don't have a generator in your backyard. The you know financial instruments, the banks, those are all, you know, you're bankless. You don't have a bank in your backyard. You don't run your own bank. So most of the things that are mature in our lives have that type of experience, right? That's, that's just how it works. There's just this weird area in compute where people feel that we have to do it all from scratch hmm. because we were starting from raw materials Every Linux server needs to be tuned before it can be used. 
Yeah. If you think about like the mobile world, it's a phone. It's not a uh, mobile server. It's a phone. So it means that it has clear context of what it can do. And so then when you bring in things like a, a SDK that says, here's how you write apps, that comes also with the delivery mechanism, like an app store. No one's managing phones with Puppet because the whole ecosystem is clear. And now we can have 100 million developers writing mobile apps. Servers are a little bit more complex because you have to know too much. You have to know all of these things. Should you know them? Look, yes, I am a big fan of education. I think everyone should learn as much as they can because then they can do more. But the real reality is that most people have no interest in paving streets before they drive. That is not the thing that they want to do every day. So I think for this really this tool, this idea we have called computation or, or, or servers that take off, we do need to have a world where you can do 95% of what's possible without thinking about infrastructure. And those special cases need to be just that. Deploying an app across two regions is not a special case. That is obvious. People have been doing it. Let's not fool ourselves here. So if a, if a random person wants to deploy an app across multiple places, they should be able to say, here's my app. I want it to be running across multiple places and give me an endpoint and keep it so because you know what you're doing. Just tell me how much it's going to cost. We have to get there. And honestly, if you're listening to this, maybe you're not the person who believes in that, but guarantee you someone's going to be working hard to figure that out because that's where the majority of the users will be. So I want to get back to one of your talks at KubeCon, the one where you referred to Hidden Figures, that movie. You mentioned something like how you know the different tools that are out there distract us from you know, working on the task at hand, which is solving a business problem. I think serverless is part of the software development's evolution to which we now we're shifting the focus now into solving the business problem and we're putting it center stage and the tools become, you know, secondary and do not get in the way and we don't get distracted. Would you agree uh, with that? Uh? Yeah. I mean, there is so much innovation that happens when you raise the bar that high, right? Like you want to cool your home or heat your home. We've reduced that to the thermostat knob and turn it left, turn it right. Things heat up. Uh, things are placed in a strategic location so that that actually works as efficient as possible. So when people set out to build platforms that are equally as you know intuitive to use, that's design, right? We, we design things to be used. So I think Square just put out a project called Treasury, right? It's like, if you want to build a bank, so what's involved in building a bank is actually harder than most people think. You know, if you're having people deposit money, are you going to pay them interest? What regulations do you have? And so what they did was say, look, what if it was much easier to build a true virtual bank? And so I think I haven't played with it yet, but if you looked at the kind of the product description, you can go and just fill out a few configs. We want to pay this kind of interest on deposits. We want X, Y, Z, you know, we want all these features. And then poof, you have the foundations of a bank backed by a real bank that has all the regulations intact. And then this no code movement that you see, you know, I met a lawyer, um, he was a lawyer and I was like, what are you doing now? He's like, well, I'm taking a pause from the practice because I am now building software for pilots. It's like, well, what, 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 kind of, what are you using to do this? He's like, oh no, I have one of these no code things. And what most pilots need, they need a way to schedule, uh, you know, their flight instructors. They want to be able to schedule um, 
when they can go give flight classes because most of them don't do it full time. And the number of people who need flight lessons is very small. So you need something really tactical and then you have to capture what their plane is and you got to do this matchmaking. What are you getting your license for? So I just built this. I went to this tool. I put in all the information about the planes and they had like a scheduling modules that you could use to build a hotel or build anything that requires matchmaking, reservation and price setting. And he did a bunch of drag and dropped. He made an interface. He hit publish. He had a mobile app, a website, and he's making money selling to flight instructors a tool. And apparently he's killing it that he's make more money as a quote unquote software developer than as a lawyer. So to me, that says that's what we mean by accessibility. Focus on the idea and the tools do very little to help you capture the idea and make it come true. I want to go back to a couple of quotes of yours that I've read. And one, you said, some of my best achievements came from helping others accomplish theirs. And there's this other one that says, I want to be remembered as this person who helped other people find out how to be better than they currently are. Is this a way of approaching leadership? Is that due to your self-taught you know, background in, in tech? I think, that, I think this deserves a bit of honesty. Uh-huh. Those things are easy to say when you already achieve success for yourself. Because when you're struggling to figure out, are, have you reached your own definition of success, it's really hard to put others before you. It's just, it's just hard to do, right? Like if you're starving, it's really hard to give someone the food if you're not necessarily feel like you've been nourished yourself. So I think I'm at a phase of my life where it's easier to say those kind of things. But now that I can reflect back though, the things I actually remember, I get the reminders from people who say, hey man, you remember that time you told me or showed me how to do a thing? Well, I'm doing that now and I'm able to provide for my family. It really meant a lot for me. And they can tell you in very specific details that the work you did was more than you could do on your own because that's kind of like a team kind of partnership thing. I can actually achieve things I couldn't do by myself. So having an impact on someone's life feels a different way because I I appreciate when someone has a positive impact on my life, right? Like you go to the doctor and they patch you up. You're like, wow, you probably literally saved my life. You can appreciate when other people do a thing for you that you can't. So when you get into position where you can do that for someone else, it's just extremely, extremely valuable. And I've had just real life scenarios where you know, when I wanted to stop giving keynotes, right? It's like, it's a lot of work to come up with all these new ideas, go on stage and hope you do a good job. And I was like, I don't need to do these anymore. And, and, and a person brings their son to one of the conferences, you know, it was a black gentleman with his son. And he wanted to show his son that not only could we be in tech, we can also be leaders in tech. We can be on stage. And he told me that he never thought he needed someone to look up to until he saw me talking about this new complex technology on YouTube. And he was just like, now I can see myself. He saw a bit of inspiration there and it changed his career trajectory. And so now I think about how many times have I done that? I'm so lucky to be in a situation where I can actually help make the world a slightly better place by helping people at at these kind of levels. So to me, um, that stuff is just super important. I think there's a lot of stuff that you can learn from, you know, from going to courses or, uh, or books, which is basically, you know, where everything starts, but what are the kinds of things that you think that you can only get from like an 
like from experience being told by either a mentor or someone like in the current position that you are in right now, what is it that you can contribute to a young software engineer's, you know, upbringing, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I think the phrase still holds true. There's no better teacher than experience itself. But a lot of times people need a starting point. You know, like my first job was at McDonald's. And I remember the first time someone asked me to mop the lobby floor. And this is something where people don't typically think they need to teach you how to mop, right? Like there's a mop, there's water. And you <laughs> rub the mop on the floor. This should be pretty straightforward, right? And you're also in a situation where you don't want to ask for a tutorial <laughs> to mop the floor. So what you do is you go get some experience, right? You, you're using cold water because you don't know better. Hot water works a lot better. Uh, soap would help. <laughs> and then you're applying friction maybe not enough. And so the floor is now wet and it's shining. And sometimes it masks the dirt. You're like, wow, the floor is great. And then it dries and you see that, ooh, I missed a few spots. And mentally you might say, well, if I apply more pressure, then maybe I can clean those kind of areas. And then someone comes out and say, you know, the floor would dry 10 times faster if you use hot water instead of cold. It's like, ah, so you start learning these things. You forget to put the you know, wet floor sign out, someone walks in and, oh, my back. And now they get free fries for life. That's your fault. And so you'll never make that mistake again, but you can have shortcuts by saying, here's a video. Hey, my name's Kelsey. Here's how you mop a floor here at McDonald's. Use hot water, not cold. It'll dry faster. Don't forget to put out the wet sign before you start, right? Because you, there won't be time to go get it while the floor's already wet. Here is the best technique to mop and not hurt yourself or anyone around you. Do not swing the mop, ow, right? You give people these visuals. So now I'm watching the video and you're like, okay, I might not remember all that, but you'll get most of it correctly. And this is what we mean by scaling our experience to other people. So when new people show up to software development, nothing's better than having that, like the book to say, we're going to write your first application. We're going to stick to Hello World so you learn the mechanics how to write code, pick an editor, compile, test, make a few mistakes, and then try again. That's a good starting point for someone now to be able to go and gain their own experiment or experience through experimentation. So I just think that's one thing that we tend to do as humans. One person learns like, hey, where's your hand? Yeah, these things are sharp. So, oh, right. do you know why Kelsey has one hand? And then those stories help us uh, keep both of our hands in place. So there's nothing that's better than experience, but sometimes we can share our experiences to prevent people from having to hit those same brick walls. What was your objective when you came out with the Kubernetes the hard way? Why the hard way? Why were you so, um, you put a lot of emphasis on, you could, you know, take shortcuts, but this is the hard way. Back in the day, and I forget the person's name, but he wrote a a book called like Python the Hard Way. And that was his thing. And I remember watching uh, some old movies like Three the Hard Way, right? Like we're going to go solve this crime in our neighborhood the hard way, right? Like by actually, you know, doing what we have to do to, to, to make the community better. So the hard way has always been this thing that, you know, it's like the rite of passage, right? There's always the easy way, but you can't really appreciate the easy way until you understand the hard way. What are you really getting from this? So, when I was out, you know, talking about Kubernetes, and now at that time I was a core contributor to the core of it, and I kind of understood Kubernetes from the very lowest levels. I knew how the scheduler works. I knew how the predicates are evaluated. 
I know how the kublet does its thing. So when I talk about it at a high level, I have enough empathy to know that I'm talking around a few things that I can go deep if necessary. But I remember when I joined Google, so several years later, I would join Google Cloud. And I remember I had an empathy session with the Google Kubernetes engine team, the GKE team, back in our commercial product. And I got them all in a room. And I said, listen, the industry says Kubernetes is extremely hard and it needs to get simpler. And we were all running around in circles trying to compete with the less powerful, but somewhat easier to use tools like Docker Swarm and so forth. But I knew Docker Swarm didn't have all the power necessary. Complexity needs to leave, live somewhere. So I was like, look, I don't, I don't think Kubernetes is actually hard. I think people don't understand it. So therefore, they're going to keep saying it's hard. So no matter how much you do above it, for example, there was this big bash script called KubeUp. And it was written in bash. I think Joe Beta is responsible for this, one of the co-founders of Kubernetes. But this bash script is probably like 2 trillion lines. Like, seriously, it's a lot of bash. But it's definitely written in the style where you say, look, you put so much effort, you should have just used like Python or something. So you would run KubeUp and it had like 200,000 flags and it will create a cluster for you. Now, it wouldn't manage the lifecycle of the cluster. It couldn't help you if your SSL certificates between the components were to expire a year from now. You would be caught off guard because you didn't even know SSL certificates were even there doing anything. So people were just so accustomed to the KubeUp script. So you get all these engineers in the room. Some of the co-founders are there too now. And I say, look, I'm going to make this super easy. All you have to do is install a single node Kubernetes cluster. That's it. You ain't even got to run no apps. That's all you got to do. No one can do this because people are debating, should, should I get this operating system? What version of Docker do we need again? Should I put the kublet? What do you do with the API server? Where should I run the scheduler? Ham, how do you generate an SSL certificate? You know what? Forget it. And most people just kind of bail. And I was like, now we have empathy. So the script never helped you all. You've been running this script for years, but it didn't help you troubleshoot or figure out how to install a cluster. So we went two directions. So one thing we did was we started to build a pragmatic tool called Kube Admin. So that's where it came from. It came from that empathy session. And we started to have OS packages because that was another takeaway. People should be able to do app git install Kubernetes, right? And bring in the right components because that's where most system administrators are. So we should meet them there. But I decided that the thing that was more important was how does it work from bot top to bottom? And I knew that most system administrators, if they walk through the complexity once, it would actually make them feel so much better about the whole thing that they would actually then have the confidence to be able to manage one of these systems, no matter if they started with the script or not. So Kelsey, as a leader, what qualities do you look for in your teammates especially the junior ones, but not also the juniors, but also the ones that are, you would have to collaborate at, like a, at a same level. What are the sorts of qualities you want? So for junior, so I've been a VP of engineering. You know, I, I, I used to run the operations team at Puppet Labs. You know, I, I've, I've done a lot of engineering leadership and I've always been a hands-on leader. So I kept my empathy in check. And I remember when I used to hire people, right? So let's talk about this from the hiring perspective. Like, you know, I've worked alongside, but I remember the initial when I hired some of these folks. And I remember I interviewed uh, a young woman and she was like, hey, uh, I, I want to work at Puppet. It's a local startup. It's really hot. I want to get into computers. I'm just now getting out of college. 
but my only experience is that I've been the teacher assistant for the professor and I just fixed their computer from time to time. So I don't know if that's enough experience to work here, but I really, really want to get into this stuff. And I heard Pup is the place to be. So at this point, I'm like, you know, you seem to have the right passion, the right energy, maybe not quite the right experience to be getting to config management, especially if you don't necessarily have all the Linux. And like, I, I got to ask a few more questions. And I think the sign of a good person that interviews someone is that you're trying to find the best in the person. You're not trying to disqualify them with trick questions. So I said, what are you doing on your free time? Like, I, all right, let's put that to like, what are you kind of doing in free time? She said, oh my God, me and my friends, we write games using JavaScript. We use this particular engine. We like this physics engine. This other one doesn't work that great. And here's a few of the games we build. I'm sitting there like, oh my God, you need to start leading with that. Not only are you technical, I think you can hit this ground running because a lot of this job is going to be exploring various technologies and figuring out how to put them together. So you have the job, and I want you to keep that same energy you have for the gaming stuff. I want you to apply that to tech because there's nothing you cannot do as long as you have that appetite, that, that hunger of, I've seen someone else make a game. That means I can make a game. That is true. Now, you may fail along the way, so be willing to accept that piece. I like to see that hunger. So if you're just getting into Kubernetes, for example, and you say, look, to be honest, I, I don't have any experience. I never worked at a company where we ran Kubernetes, but I'll tell you this, on my GitHub, I've been repackaging things like Jira and Splunk in Kubernetes and writing little tests to make sure that it works. So I can show you some of my manifest. I can show you how those manifests evolved over time as I've been learning. That is definitely a strong hire. That's the type of person that I know if I gave a problem that even if they don't understand what the solution is, they're going to work through it. They're going to be willing to probably ask questions to say, look, I can do it. And they're going to take ownership. So they're going to develop and grow. So for new people, I'm not looking to be impressed completely by your resume and you prove to me that you've done everything that I'll possibly ask you to do. I just want to know, are you hungry enough to not back down from challenges and also be willing to ask questions and learn in public? So that's what I look, look towards is like, are you willing to learn as you go? And if so, I got a place for you. So as a leader, um, have you also had the opportunity to work with uh, external contractors or third-party contractors? Um, and uh, what do you look for in these sorts of people, whether it's you know freelance coders or our third-party contractors? Is it like that same passion and problem-solving hunger that you just described that you look for in more junior hires? So when it comes to contractors, it's slightly different. Um, mm -hmm. If you're at a company that tends to onboard people as contractors, I tend to just treat them like full-time employees because I, I noticed that the distinction is unhealthy when you start to have a meeting yeah. only for full-time but not the contractors. And then you ask the contractors to be able to work on the things that they, they need to be part of that full experience. So the way I think about you know an employee contractor versus FTE is the same, right? So I just kind of treat them the same whether it's a contract or not. But if you're a contractor, meaning the reason why I'm paying for paying for your services is you know what I don't. So I expect you to be able to do it faster, better than I can. Maybe not cheaper, but you got to check the other two boxes. So I'm looking for expertise here. Like, you know, I, Kelsey, look, you want to build a house. I build houses. You don't build houses. Pay me to build a house. So then the question is going to be different. Like, show me something that I can't do, right? Because if you show me a bunch of stuff that I can do, 
They're going to be like, why am I paying you? So maybe I pay you because yeah. maybe I'm really good at it and you are too. And I'd rather have you do it. That's cool. But if I'm not good at something and you show me stuff that I'm like, I actually can do better than that. Then we're going to have a few problems. So I would think for me is when I think contractor, I'm thinking that you have a high degree of expertise that I don't have. And it makes no sense for you to go work full time for a place because you're way more tactical. You're way more efficient. If people just kind of go with the way you work, they'll get the results and then you can move on. So I've seen, I think you think about Docker, I think Docker was built by a contractor, right? They, you know, Doc Cloud contracted out. Uh, I, I hate them forgetting his name, but he produced the first thing of Docker, right? And he wrote blog posts about it. And that's a good case of having someone that knows what they're doing, be, contract them out, bring their expertise, and they produce something beautiful, you can take it and run with it. So to me, I think that's the right relationship when you start to talk about an expertise contractor. Kelsey, um, we're now... Uh at the end of our uh, conversation, I just want to thank you, you know, for your time, for taking the, your, your time to talk with me and, you know, share your, you know, your experience, your stories. Awesome. Appreciate you for having me. Thanks, man. It's been great talking to you. Thank you for watching this episode of Rocket to the Cloud. If you like this episode, click the like button and subscribe to our channel. And don't forget to click on the bell icon so you can be notified whenever we publish a new interview with another awesome guest. Until next time.